Our reading this afternoon is from Galatians 5:25 to 6:5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. You may be seated. Uh, And as you're being seated this afternoon, uh, we're working on the afternoon morning language. So if we say morning, we really mean afternoon. We've just been in the morning for so long now that we'll probably say that for a few weeks. Uh, Let me pray for us. Jesus, we do thank you for this gathering of people who have come together, Lord, uh, not only to enjoy one another, not only to enjoy coffee, but to enjoy you, Uh, to sit under your word, to hear from you, uh, Lord, knowing uh, that you alone, you alone give us water that lasts forever. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, uh, ears to hear, and a heart to obey uh, the word that you are speaking to us this afternoon. Amen. Well, good afternoon again. Welcome here. My name is Jake. I, along with Heath and a few other people, are part of the team here at Christ City East Vancouver. And I would ask, like, who's new? But in a real sense, we're all new. Uh, So welcome all you new people. You can give yourself a hand of applause. You're all new. You're all new, and so you're all heading to the Connect table following the gathering. Uh, You can just line up in a nice orderly queue. That'd be fantastic. Uh, this afternoon, we're continuing in our series that South Vancouver and Kitsilano are, are continuing in. That's our series in Galatians. And as I was preparing this week for this, this text, for this sermon, uh, I really did sense that it was the Lord's providence and his grace and his good plan to bring us to this text on this, this first time that we're gathering for worship, word, and sacrament. Uh, as you'll see over the course of our time together, uh, we're talking tonight about what it means to live with one another as the family of God. That's what the text is about, living with one another as the family of God. So how perfect is that for our first time together uh, to talk about that, to to dive deep uh, there? Well, we all know, I I think, how most relationships begin. At least in my world, because I'm superficial, uh, they begin like really lovely, like really kind. Uh, I like to put my best foot forward, and so if I'm nice to you, I'm just pretending. I'll soon prove to be a jerk. Uh, Jen shaking her head, she's like, that's true. Uh, no, we all know how most relationships begin. They, they begin, like, lovely and, and nice and kind, and we're, we're generally pleasant with people, at least in Vancouver, at least in the 21st century. I know that's not true across the globe, but at least uh, in my experience here, we, we like to begin nice and, and lovely and, and kind with one another. I remember I was, I was 19 years old. And I did a one-year Bible college program. And I used this Bible college very appropriately because we, like, kayaked and surfed and learned about Jesus as we kayaked and surfed. And so it was Bible college. Um, And I was there with with 30 other 20-somethings, and we lived on a campground. So you can imagine what that was like already. Uh, And it started off the first week. We all loved each other so much. We were so grateful to be with each other, uh, so thankful to, to be doing community together and to be in the spiritual journey together. And then by the end of the year, uh, we hated each other. Uh, it was like, I cannot wait to leave these, leave these people. Maybe not hated each other, maybe that's too strong of a word, but, but we had grown, at least in our relationship. 
Anytime we choose to truly love a, a person or a group of people, eventually, inevitably, it's only a matter of time before push comes to shove, isn't it? When the honeymoon is over and we decide whether or not we're in this thing for real or we just like the idea, just like the thought. And the question we're left with at the end of the day is once the honeymoon fades and the new exciting people become new annoying, new needy, new difficult people, how do we persist? Indeed, how do we love one another as followers of Jesus, as family? Now, as we turn to Galatians this afternoon, we need to remind ourselves, if you're just jumping into the series now, that the Galatian church is a a fractured community, a a fractured group of people, uh, divided by false teaching that has sought to add to the work of Jesus. That's sought to add to the work of Jesus. And in these last few chapters of Galatians, Paul's been painting this picture of what a new spirit-filled and spirit-led community looks like. Not only does this community uh, teach and profess the truth that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, but they're rooted on and they live out of the truth that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He's talking about what a gospel community looks like. And to do this, To do this, Paul gives us now, in Galatians 5.25 to 6 verse 5, three relational requirements. Three relational requirements. So if you're taking notes, here's the outline really simply. Uh, The first relational requirement that Paul gives the Galatian church, that Paul gives us, is that we see ourselves today as children of God. That's the first one, that we see ourselves as children of God. The second, that we see one another as brothers and sisters. And third and finally, that we see the big picture. So first, that we see ourselves as children of God. Second, that we see one another as brothers and sisters. And then thirdly and finally, that we see the big picture in all of this. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go with me to Galatians 5, verse 25. And again, the first thing we want to see, the first thing Paul wants us to see, is that we are children of God. And it's a good truth. Read that with me, Galatians 5, 25 to 26. You can follow along. Also, if you don't have a Bible, uh, take one in the back, grab it, keep it. It's our gift to you. Uh, you're going to need it during this time. Galatians 5, 25 to 26, it says this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, if you've been tracking with us so far in Galatians, what has Paul said is true about us? Us who are in Jesus. How has Paul talked about us so far? Let me remind you of a few things. He said so far that God set you apart before you were born. So far he said that you were called by God's grace. He's said that we've been justified. We've been declared not guilty. We're no longer under the penalty of the law any longer. And he's said, he's told uh, the Galatians about themselves. He said, because you're, you're justified, because this is true of you, you are dead to your old ways of needing to prove yourself, of needing to make your own way in this world. All these things Paul tells us in the first three chapters, and he's building up to this crescendo, this high point we find in chapter 4. And Paul says this in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. He gives like this summary of time, of, of history. He says this, But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, he writes. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There is a a, a radical, spirit-empowered shift in the life of the Christian uh, when it comes to how they view themselves. When it comes to how they understand themselves, we, we no longer judge ourselves on the basis of, of worldly metrics any longer, but we judge ourselves now on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Paul wrote in Galatians 3 that we're no longer under the curse any, anymore. We're, we're now out of the curse because Jesus has become the curse for us. And at this point, and maybe it's too early for for application, but here's a really quick application point for you, Christ City, East Vancouver. Uh, does your opinion of yourself uh, line up w- with God's opinion of you? It's a really good question to ask. Do you see yourself the way Paul has talked about the Galatian church so far? Do, do you see yourself that way? And you might be wondering, Jake, what does this have to do with other people? Let me tell you, great question. I'm glad you asked that. See, what we'll find in our text this afternoon is that in order to relate to others well, in order to understand and love and serve others well, we need to first know who we are. See, seeing yourself rightly as a child of God is the first relational requirement for living in the family of God because we treat one another on the basis of how we understand ourselves. And if you don't think that's true, if you don't think that's true, look at the text with, uh, once again with me. Paul writes there, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And look at verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Uh, the word conceited in our text speaks of someone who has an opinion of themselves uh, that is empty or vain or false. And it's because someone has an empty or vain or false opinion of themselves that they either provoke another person or envy another person. Because they have an empty or vain or false opinion of themselves, they provoke because they need to best the other for their own self-validation, to to prove uh, their superiority. They envy Because dissatisfied with with who they are and and what they have, they look longingly at the life of another. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on Galatians, he helpfully adds, What the apostle writes here is entirely true of our own experience. Generally speaking, we adopt towards each other one of these two attitudes. We are motivated either by feelings of inferiority or superiority. When we forget, Christ City, that we are children of God, our natural disposition, the way we naturally relate to others, is either from a place of inferiority or or superiority. Now, because Paul is writing to a church about how they should act towards one another, I think it's worth playing this out as to how we should act with one another in, in the church, how we should love one another at Christ City East Vancouver. Consider, for example, uh, this. Uh, maybe you're, you're new, which again is all of us. You're, you're all new. So this applies to all of you. You can't escape this application. Uh, you, you're new. You're new. And you don't know anybody. And after a gathering, uh, you see people talking 
and laughing, and they're having a great time. And you think to yourself, I could go over there and introduce myself, but, you know, I don't really want to be a burden. Plus, I don't really know them. Plus, like, I didn't work on any jokes to share. And so how would I even get them to like me if I didn't share a joke? Which you're like, who does that? I do that, right? You'll, you'll see. You're unsure, at least, whether you'll be met with approval or not. And so what you do, what, what do you do? You just head out the back door, right? Just leave. And eventually, you, you know, you, a few weeks later, uh, you know, you, you go to a different church. Those people weren't friendly. The gospel frees you from feelings of inferiority. The gospel frees you from, from, from feelings of, of rejection and, and, and the fear of rejection. Because it reminds all of us, as Paul does now in Galatians uh, chapter 5, that you are a child of God. You're able to approach others. You've been given a foundational, irrevocable identity uh, that can't be taken away. Whether or not you like the sermon this afternoon or not, guess what? I have something in Jesus that you can't take away. It's beautifully disarming, isn't it? Or consider the inverse. It's not feelings, perhaps, of of inferiority that plague your ability to serve and love others, but feelings of uh, superiority. Maybe you just finished reading your, your third book this week on Christian theology. And you're just like, you know, you know what's up. And you've come to community group and you're fired up and you're ready to, to give truth to people and they will hear that truth and you will, and you will destroy them with a bash over the head with the truth, right? You've read the books, you know, like you, you're, you're, you're on your, you're on your game here, right? Any and all theological missteps, not in my community group. Right? You gotta lay down the hammer. The gospel frees you from feelings of superiority because, as Paul has been reminding us throughout Galatians, guess what uh, you contributed to your salvation? Jonathan Edwards says, Your sin. That's what you gave, that's what you contributed. Your need. You come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. And now, And now, in this new spirit-led community, Paul says in Galatians 3, these old hierarchical walls of division are being torn down. Old ways we used to divide ourselves and, and keep ourselves separate, they're being torn down. And now Paul says in Galatians 3, we are one in Christ, one in Jesus. You are simply and gloriously a child of, of God. Now, we could really spend all afternoon unpacking this dynamics. I think literally it's at play all the time, at least in my own heart. Uh, But if you want to dive deeper into this dynamic of feelings of inferiority and superiority, let me give you a a great tip here. The best $6 you can spend on Amazon this week uh, is this book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. There's no excuse because let me tell you, it is 45 pages. It is 45 pages. It is $6. Uh, You have no excuse not to buy this. It's Tim Calvert. It's really helpful. He explores this dynamic on a deeper level. I would really, really commend this uh, to you. Now, I began our time this afternoon reminding us or remarking that I think we come to this passage at an important time for our community. I think it's, it's timely. 
There is a, a very real, very real danger at our doorstep this afternoon. A very, very real danger. And the danger is this. That all of this, uh, the singing and the communion that we'll do later and the, the preaching and uh, the, the, the benedicting that will happen at the end. I don't think that's a word, but I'm going to make it a word. The benedicting. The danger is that all of this, all of this stuff that we do in a gathering becomes theoretical and cold and, and abstract. And we come on a Sunday, and I know because I've been there, uh, the preacher's actually talking about somebody else. Or the song's actually about somebody else. And it's not really my sin and my stuff and the gospel for me. It's the gospel sort of out there. The gospel for them. The danger here is that we don't appropriate any of this for ourselves. That we go through an entire Sunday thinking, as I said, it's for somebody else. You and I need to remind ourselves that we are children of God and we need to rehearse that all the time. Because it's only when we see ourselves as children of God, and this is the natural flow of Galatians here, that we are then freed to serve one another as brothers and sisters. Look at Galatians 6 with me. Galatians 6, uh, verses 1 to 3. Paul writes there, Brothers, I think we can safely say brothers and sisters, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We'll stop there. Paul is talking about here, in in what we just read, a a ministry of burden-bearing that we are to have with one another. He's talking about a ministry of burden-bearing, and he gives a specific example of coming alongside a brother or a sister who has been overtaken or caught in sin. Now, before we get too deep into this, it's interesting to note, um, and and I bet some of us just initially responded this way, uh, that depending on your background, the very idea of bearing one another's burdens, that, that whole idea... Whether that burden is, is walking with a person in the midst of sin or heartbreak or, or whatever it looks like, that might be a foreign and strange idea to you. You know, there's this school of thought that I think is more in line with, with Greek Stoic philosophy than, than, than biblical Christianity that says something like this. I don't want to burden other people with my problems. No, Jake, you know what? I, I don't really want to burden other people. I'll just bring them to God. I'll just share my burdens with the Lord. And that's sufficient. That's enough. And you quote, rightly, passages like Psalm 55, 22. David writes there. He encourages us there. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Now, let me be clear here. We should and we ought to cast our burdens onto the Lord. Psalm 55, 22 is abundantly clear. But what is also abundantly clear is that often, often, the Lord's response to you casting your burdens onto him is to do what? Is to bring you a friend. Is to bring you a brother or a sister in Jesus. Consider the Apostle Paul's own experience in Macedonia. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 7, 5-6. For even when we came into Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, 
but we were afflicted at every turn. Listen, fighting without and fear within. Fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, did what? Sent like a feeling into Paul's heart. Sent like an army of angels. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. His friend Titus came. We are, I think this is fair to say, we are impoverished as a community when we choose to keep our burdens to ourselves. Indeed, we lose opportunities to serve one another and love one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus. So how do we actually do this? I want us to see three things. Why we should bear one another's burdens. Who are the people who should be doing this? And how we should go about bearing one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2, why should we do this? You heard it read. Bear one another's burdens. And, and, and what happens? And so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul's just saying what he has already said. Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of Galatians, all of Galatians, we've been told that doing the law is unable to make us right with God. It, it can't happen. It can't happen that way. But that doesn't mean that we do whatever we want, right? It doesn't mean we do whatever we want. On the contrary, now that we have the Spirit, now that He lives in us, we are able to truly love, to, to truly fulfill the law of Christ. We should bear one another's burdens and love because you and I together are being formed into the image of Christ who loved us. And, and when we think about this, that's actually quite profound. I owe this insight to John Stott, but he talks about this in his commentary, that Paul is telling us, he, he's telling us that Christ-like love for one another doesn't necessarily always happen. And in fact, I think, I don't know if it's fair to say, rarely happens in large, spectacular, magnificent, like billboard kind of ways. But more often, that bearing one, another bearing one, another, one another's burdens happens in the mundane, day-to-day -day existence of, of burden-bearing, of picking someone up from work, of listening, of doing the dishes after you find out that their parent has died. The example he gives here is this really mundane, almost boring example of restoring a brother who has been caught in sin. I love the, the, the normalcy that Paul talks about here. The way that he talks about this should be part of every day of the Christian life. He's not talking about like the big, grievous, like adultery and murder and like these big, huge, you know, billboard sins. He's talking about in the everyday stuff of life, we should always be doing this. Just this morning, just this morning, I had a friend do the exact same thing. Martin Luther said, Christians must have strong shoulders and mighty bones. Now, in the midst of this why, Paul gives us a warning. Look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Failure to love one another through mutual burden bearing shows that you're self-deceived. That you don't get it. If I can paraphrase Paul here. You who strut around thinking you're a big deal, 
thinking you're the king or the queen, but you fail to bear the burdens of your brother or sister, you miss the whole point. You miss the whole point. And even more dangerously, it looks like the Spirit might not even be working in you. The why behind burden bearing is to fulfill the law of Christ. But the who, who does this, who, who, who's to do this burden bearing, who, who, who's to do this restoring, is equally as important. Galatians 6.1, we read it again. Paul writes, If anyone is caught in any transgression, who should do this? You who are spiritual. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual uh, does not mean uh, you spiritual elites. It does not mean you level 10 Christians. It does not mean you pastors. But rather, quite literally, you who are led by the Spirit. You new Spirit-filled people. That's who Paul's talking about here. You who are led by the Spirit. And this makes sense for, for a few reasons. In just a moment, we'll see that this restoration is to be done, Paul says, in a spirit of gentleness. And if you remember, just a few verses prior, gentleness is what? It's the fruit of the Spirit. That makes sense, right? That the spiritual should restore in gentleness because they they have something to offer. They have something to give. Not themselves, not their own ability, not their own wisdom, but completely dependent on the Spirit. They can give what He has provided. What he births in us. And the fruit he brings. And further, it's important that it's the spirit-led who lead this charge. Because if we're not careful, we can fall into this trap. And maybe you can um, relate to this. Where we forget our own weakness. We forget our own frail humanity. And we speak to the other person in sin. Not as if they're a brother or sister but as if there's something lesser. Something lesser. Paul writes at the end of verse 1, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And tempted to what? Tempted to think you're above sin? Tempted to think that you're above ever doing what this person is doing? Tempted to pride? I think it's all of those things. If I can speak to my own experience for one moment, the danger of having a job where you are constantly meeting with people in these difficult and hard situations is that you can begin to think, if you're not careful, that you are God's gift to a broken humanity. And Fred laughs because he knows me. (laughs) That's not true. But that's a temptation that's there. Paul says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so it's the spirit-led and the spirit-filled who do this restoring because, hear this, Christ City, they alone have the resources to do it. They alone have the resources to do it. And it's only if we have the spirit living inside of us that we can keep ourselves from the sin of pride in the midst of this. That's why the spirits will do this. But finally, notice the radically wide nature of this invitation. Anyone... All who are spirit-led are to do this. Again, Paul does not say, you who are pastors, you who are deacons, you who are leaders. Paul has Greek words for all of those things, and he does not use them. 
Instead, he says, all who are spirit-led and spirit-filled, all you family of God, brothers and sisters, all of you, all the church, all the people filled with the spirit, all of you do this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that community would look like? I would love to be part of a community like that. And I think most of us would agree. It is God's good gift to us that we have this text today as we gather for the first time for worship, word, and sacrament. Christ City, East Vancouver, I think this is a word for us. Finally, how should we restore one another? How should we do this? Well, we heard it read, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of, of gentleness. And the Greek word here, restore, is a word that comes from the secular Greek world, the, the world of, of medicine. And it's talking about the setting or, of a fractured or dislocated bone. That's the imagery Paul's evoking here, the setting of a fractured or a dislocated bone. Restoration is the aim. The conversation might hurt. It will undoubtedly be uncomfortable. If you ever had a broken bone, you know that it's uncomfortable at least. But the end goal, the end goal in confronting a brother or a sister with their sin is always, always to restore them to wholeness. Always to to help them be put back together. To take that part of their life that is not under the lordship and kingship of Jesus and to put that part of their life back in place. Back under Jesus' lordship. Back under Jesus' kingship. Again, this is an all the time sort of thing. It only makes sense then that if restoration is the goal, then it needs to be done gently. I don't know if you've ever seen an art conservationist before. I googled it this week, so I saw it for the first time this week. But when an art conservationist is brought an old painting by one of history's masters, how do they go about restoring it? I'll tell you this. I know this from YouTube. They do not take steel wool and dish detergent and just go to town on the thing, right? They, 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 they don't do that. They don't do that. That would ruin the painting. I think we can agree that it would be reckless. Instead, what does the art conservationist do? They painstakingly work day and night with little tools and special chemicals to preserve the image the master painted. Now hear me, Christ City. How much more so should you and I labor in gentleness to preserve the image of God in those we are rebuking, in those we are correcting? How much more so? We aim, we aim to bear one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. And and, and hear me, it's all of us who participate. If you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you're, you're a part of this game. You're in. And when it comes to matters of restoring those caught in sin, Paul says it must be done in a spirit of gentleness. But, but, what if the person doesn't want to share their burdens? Or, what if, using the example Paul has used, they've been caught in sin and don't want to be restored? Or on the flip side of that, are there some loads that cannot be shared? Are there some burdens that must be carried by the individual? Look at Galatians 6, 4-5 with me. 
But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. With the addition of these two verses, we see that Paul is working very hard in our passage this afternoon to strike a balance between what is our corporate responsibility and what is our individual responsibility. The Bible talks about both of those, both our corporate responsibility as the people of God, by the same breath, our individual responsibility. Corporately, or rather individually, individually, you and I need to see that we are children of God. Otherwise, as we've seen, we'll act from a place of inferiority or superiority. That's individually. Corporately, as brothers and sisters together, we need to bear one another's burdens, recognizing that to do this is to fulfill the law of Christ. To not do this is to be self-deceived, to have an inflated view of ourselves. But now, once again, Paul turns to the individual. He turns to you. And let me summarize verses 4 and 5 for us. In effect, Paul says, Ultimately, you, individual, individual Christian, individual follower of Jesus, you need to examine your actions towards the community of faith and see if they proceed from a heart of love or from an inflated view of yourself. You need to test those. Look at yourself. From which source does your ministry come from? Because there is coming a day, and this is verse 5, there is coming a day when you will stand individually before the throne of God and give an account of your life. While in this life we ought to share one another's burdens, there is coming a day when I cannot carry your burden and you cannot carry mine. A day when we appear before God, yes, the church, yes, as people, but as well as individuals. This is what I mean when I say that the third relational requirement is that we must remember the big picture. We must remember the big picture. Paul summarizes the big picture in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, as I was praying and preparing this week, my sense, and I could be wrong here, and it wouldn't be the first time that I've been wrong, My sense is that many of us are quick to acknowledge the corporate aspect of our responsibility to one another, right? Millennials, we love community. We love, like, coming together. Uh, We love that. And I think that's a redemptive thing, a good thing. But when it comes, when it comes to taking individual responsibility for our life and for our actions and for our sin, I don't know. We're not so keen. And can I say something to us as gently, as gently as I can? We need to start acting like Christians. We have drunk so deeply of the cultural narrative that I am only at all times ever a victim. We've drunk so deeply from that cultural narrative. And we relate to everybody in our entire world and our entire workplace and our entire church community as a victim all the time. And can I again gently say this? That is not the biblical narrative. The biblical narrative is that you and I are first transgressors. It is while we were still transgressors that Jesus died for us. And because Jesus died for you and has given you his spirit, guess what? You now have the power to act like a Christian. 
to act like a follower of Jesus. Not because of anything that you have, but because his spirit lives in you. Now, I do not doubt, and don't mishear me, that there are people in this room this afternoon who have had terrible and traumatic experiences. Which is why what Paul says here in Galatians 6 is all the more important. Let, let me start from the beginning. Remember, you're a child of God. You have an irrevocable, irremovable identity in Jesus that frees you from inferiority or superiority. You're a child of God. Hear that. And because you're a child of God, you've been given a family that includes brothers and sisters to help share that burden. And indeed, when the church does not do this, we are self-deceived. Empty. False. But you've also individually been given the Holy Spirit. You have the power, Christian, to say no to sin. You have the power to love people. You have the power to forgive people. Not because you're great. Not because you can conjure it up. But because he has given you his Holy Spirit. Our job as the church, then, is not only to bear one another's burdens, but to help one another see where we've individually failed to take responsibility. For there is coming a day, Paul writes, when each will have to bear their own load. Now, in a moment, I'm going to invite us to stand, but don't stand yet. And we'll have this time of response. Each time, each time we gather of, of singing, of giving, of, of communion, the Lord's Supper, and of, and of praying. But I want to be explicit about something. Because I think this is implied, but I think we often miss it. Part of our response to hearing the word of God is obeying the word of God. Is leaving today, leaving this place, and, and doing what it says. And so if I don't say that for some reason on a Sunday gathering, just consider it implied. That me and you and all of us are, are this week going to try to obey the word. By his spirit, do what it says. At the end of the gathering, Heath is going to come up and he's going to give us a, a blessing, a, a benediction. He's going to pronounce this over you. And you know why we need a blessing or a benediction? Because we need Jesus' help to obey. We need Jesus' help to go. To make disciples. Not only to make disciples, but to be obedient to his word. To love him and to love others. Would you stand with me as we respond this afternoon? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.